astronomer and Bart Strömer, and uh, they will have a dialogue, as you will be well aware of, on the topic of moral error theory and moral skepticism. The dialogues are a nice format, particularly for the chair, because it means that I don't actually have to say or do very much. I'll just um, briefly introduce our two speakers, and then we'll let things take their course, um, as you will perhaps know or come to realize if you don't know, the two speakers have quite controversial views on this topic, so I think it will be a very lively discussion between them, and then we'll have a lot of time, of course, as always, for questions and contributions from you as well. Um, so just a few words about um, our two speakers tonight. Bart Strömer is a lecturer in philosophy at the University of Reading. Um, he was a research fellow at Fitzwilliam College, Cambridge, before that, and he has research interests in ethics, um, and especially in metaethics, and is currently working on a book um, about moral error theory, and has also, of course, published lots of papers on the topic. Um, Halvard Lillehammer is a university senior lecturer in philosophy and a Citric lecturer um, at the University of Cambridge, and he uh, likewise has research interests in ethics, political philosophy, um, and the history of ethical thought, and he published a book entitled Companions of Guilt, Arguments for Ethical Objectivity. So today we will be um, talking about moral error theory, which is very, very roughly speaking, the idea that um, moral or more generally normative properties uh, don't exist. So basically, a moral error, th error theorist takes the attitude towards moral properties that you know sensible people talk towards, uh, take towards such things as um, you know, phlogiston, witchcraft, or what have you. Um, and so that's, roughly speaking, um, the context of the debate. And now I will hand the word over to our two speakers and look forward to an interesting dialogue. Thank you. Uh, so I'm Halva. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank uh, our organizers for inviting us here. It's great to be able to come here and talk at the LSE today. And it's nice to see so many people here. Bart and I are going to do a little bit of a ping-pong act to start with, uh, to get us set up for a discussion. Uh, we're very keen for contributions from, from you. Uh, if we say something that is uh, utterly unintelligible, absurd or otherwise unintelligible, uh, please put a hand up, object, scream, shout, or throw things. <coughs> so I want to start out by just sort of locating this issue uh, in a wider theoretical context. Um, to get us started that way. So, uh, it's nothing new that uh, philosophers and others have had views uh, about moral thought and practice where they somehow think that it uh, wasn't everything it seemed to be. So there are lots of uh, arguments in the history of, of philosophy going all the way back to the ancients where in some sense the appearance of something that is uh, uh, being presented when someone makes moral judgments or makes moral demands and others are revealed to be somehow not everything that they purport to be. So for example, you might consider a, a discussion of uh, people presenting claims about what's impartially the right thing to do, masking someone's deeply partial and manipulative uh, uh, motivations, uh, appealing to everyone's common interest in order to actually pursue something that is of their own interest. That's kind of unmasking. Really. Going much later into, into the history of philosophy, you have a, uh, writers such as Nietzsche, who claims that various kinds of uh, attributes of the Christian European 
uh, post-enlightenment morality actually disguise certain kinds of attitudes which are hidden from the ones who express those judgments, but once you see how they're operating, you should become suspicious of the kinds of judgments that are made. <coughs> so there's nothing new about this kind of suspicion about certain surface features of moral thought. However, in, in recent uh, philosophy, in the English-speaking world especially, there's been an interest in the idea that maybe there is something about moral thought as such which constitutively, meaning just in virtue of what it is, commits us to some kind of illusion. There's some things like illusory about morality. And I want to do, what I want to do now is just to locate that thought along a spectrum of different kinds of views about what's going on when people make moral judgments, which are the kinds of views that most, if not all, people thinking about this topic in philosophy uh, would take, they take one of those views. Now, the taxonomy that I'm going to present you with is in itself quite controversial, because as often in philosophy, one way to win the argument is to set up the pieces to begin with, to make it look like your view is the only one that's going to win. So not everybody uh, in this debate would accept the taxonomy that I'm giving you, but I'm going to give it to you anyway, because I think it, 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 it might uh, latch on to some, of, some things you might find familiar, and I think it will locate the view that we're discussing in a relatively straightforward manner. So the first view I want you to, to, to consider is a view which is often called moral realism. And moral realism, as I'm defining it now, is a view which thinks of moral judgments having a kind of aim. They aim to be true. And not only do those judgments aim to be true, they are true. So they have the aim, and they succeed in realizing that aim. How are they true? Well, they're true because of something about the world external to us, something about the world external to our mind. In the same way as you might think that the belief that there is a chair over there is true in virtue of something external to my mind. So when someone says that murder is wrong, and they're a moral realist, what they would want to interpret that as saying is that it's a fact external to our minds that murder is wrong. That's a moral normative fact. So that's the realist view. A second kind of view uh, I would like to call the rationalist view. A rationalist view also thinks that moral judgments in some sense have this aim of being true, and that they are true. Uh, they are successful in realizing their aim. But what makes it the case that those judgments are true is not something about the world external to our minds, it's something about the nature of our minds themselves. So the German philosopher Immanuel Kant, for example, believed that the structure of our practical rationality is such that necessarily some things ought to be the case and are not to be the case. Not because of something outside there, but something about the nature of thought. And that's the rationalist view. A third view that I'd like to define, I'm going to call it subjectivism. Not everybody likes that view. And it's quite similar to the realist view in the sense that it, it claims that moral judgments aim to be true, they aim to get things right, and they do, but the thought here is that what makes them true, the reason they're true, is not something external to us out there in the world, nor is it something essential or necessary about our thought, it's something contingent about us and our, for example, our attitudes. So someone might think that when someone says that murder is wrong, what makes that true is just that we have a negative attitude towards it. So on this view, this subjectivist view, what we're really doing when we're making moral judgments is we're kind of talking about ourselves, talking about the attitudes we have. That's the subjectivist view. 
A fourth view I'm going to call the expressivist view. The expressivist view agrees um, <coughs> to a certain extent with the subjectivist view in that there is something important about the attitudes we have towards things when we uh, make moral judgments. But instead of thinking that what we're doing when we're making moral judgments is describing those things and talking about them, what we're doing is expressing them. Right? So imagine that one of you runs down and sort of steps on my toe and I go, Ooh! I'm expressing my disgust and horror of you having stepped on my toe by going, Ooh. Well, according to the, the expressivist, moral judgments are a very sophisticated version of that kind of expression. A standard, one standard form of expressivist view has it that what you're doing when you're making a moral judgment, such as that murder is wrong, is you're expressing your disgust or disapproval of it. And the trick is that instead of it just being what I pretended to do because I pretended to be stepped on my toe, it's something that I conceptually articulate by using the language that we use when we talk about things in the world. So I say, murder is wrong. It looks like I'm saying something about an action, murder attributing a property to it, wrongness. But that's not really what I'm doing. I'm just using the language that we use when we do those things in order to express my emotion. That's the expressivist view. And finally, fifth, is this view that we're going to debate mainly today. This is the error theorist view. But the error theorist agrees with the expressivist that there isn't anything out there in the world that makes it true or false that murder is wrong. And he agrees with the realist that what moral judgments aim to do is to describe something, perhaps something out there in the world. It's just that there isn't anything there. So you take the first bit of the realist view, moral judgments aim to be true, but you also say that there is no such thing out there. Maybe because the world just doesn't happen to be that way. So maybe it could be the case that there were such facts in the world, but there just aren't any. It just happens to be no, no such facts. Or, more strongly, there couldn't be any. The idea of there being something out there in the world such that it makes the claim murder is true wrong is just an incoherent thought. So as you've seen, because the error theorist view has these two features in common to the expressivist view and the realist view, it's unsurprising that some of the things that people say for and against it are very often things that <coughs> link it to one of those two views. And on that note, uh, I'm going to leave things hanging, and I'm going to pass over to Bart, who's going to tell us something about why people think we should occupy the error theoretical position, as opposed to, say, either the expressivist position or the realist position. OK, so I think, um, um, I think it's fair to say that people don't become error theorists, they don't accept the error theory because this is such an attractive view. Because it isn't actually a very attractive view when you consider it in isolation. So if you, if you, accept the error th if you accepted the error theory, then you would think that moral judgments are beliefs, they are mental states that aim to represent the world as being a certain way. And more specifically, you would think that moral judgments are beliefs that attribute certain features to things, that attribute certain properties to things, but those properties don't actually exist. So for example, you would think that the judgment that murder is wrong is a belief that aims to represent murder as being a certain way, namely as having the property of wrongness, but the property of wrongness, according to you, if you're an error theorist, doesn't actually exist. 
that. So why is that a very unattractive view when you consider it just in isolation? Well, it's very unattractive because it seems to entail that all of our basic moral judgments are false, or at least not true. So if it's the case that the property of wrongness and the property of rightness and the property of goodness and badness, or if it's the case that all those properties don't exist, then whenever you attribute a property like that to something, what you're saying is untrue, or perhaps false. Right? So if there is no property of wrongness, then when I say murder is wrong, that's not true. If there is no property of rightness, then when I say murder is right, that's not true either. So all these attributions of moral properties that we are making, according to the error theories, when we make moral judgments, all of those attributions are actually untrue. And of course, that's a very unattractive view, because it means that whatever your moral view is, the error theory is going to conflict with your moral view. So I take it that all of us have certain views about which things are right and wrong. And the error theory, whatever those views are, the error theory is going to, to, to deny all of that. Because the error theory says, well, those properties that you're talking about don't actually exist. So whenever you attribute them to something, you're wrong. Right? What you're saying is untrue. So just considered in isolation, the error theory is a very unattractive view. So why do people, why do some people accept the error theory, or at least find the error theory very plausible? Well, I think the answer to that is that people accept the error theory because they think the alternatives to the error theory are even more unplausible. So Halbert listed some of these alternatives. Um, and I think, you know, so, so uh, against expressivism and subjectivism, most, most error theorists would say, well, those views just don't capture the, what you might call the objective pretensions that we have in moral thought. So when you disagree with something, with someone else about a moral matter, then it will presumably seem, especially if it's something important, it will seem to you that this is not a wholly symmetrical disagreement. It will seem to you that your view is right in some way, gets things right, is correct in some way, and the other person's view isn't correct in some way. It will seem to you that there is some kind of fact of the matter about this. Right? So if I say murder is permissible, and you say murder is always wrong, then it will presumably it will seem to you that there is a fact of the matter here, that you're getting things right, and I'm not getting things right. And a lot of people would say, or I think error theorists would say, that this sort of thought isn't captured very well by views like expressivism, and subjectivism, because they make uh, they make the correctness of moral judgments depend too much on what, whatever attitudes we happen to have. And error theorists will similarly make objections to what Howard called rationalism and to moral realism. So against rationalism, they would just say, well, look, there aren't any very um, definite um, principles of rationality that are essential to our moral thought, such that they make certain moral judgments correct or incorrect. And against realism, they will object that the properties that the realist supposes there are in the world, these properties of rightness and wrongness, are just too weird to actually exist. So that's just a kind of gen very general overview of why you might want to be an error theorist. And the main, the main thing that drives at least some philosophers to be error theorists is the implausibility of the alternatives. Okay, so now what I want to do is, is talk a little bit about two specific arguments that have been made uh, in the literature that have been very, very influential, specific arguments for the error theory. And the arguments were made by a philosopher called John Mackey, 
in his book Ethics, Inventing Right and Wrong. So if you're interested in this topic, this is actually a very, very accessible book. So it's called Ethics, Inventing Right and Wrong by John Mackey. And the arguments he put forward have become very, very influential. They really started the whole debate about reality. And there are two arguments that he put forward. The first argument is what he called the argument from queerness. And the argument from queerness basically says, look, if properties, if, if rightness and wrongness, if the predicates is right and is wrong, really pick out properties out there in the world, if rightness and wrongness really are features of things in the world, then these will be very, very strange sorts of features, unlike any other feature that we think there is in the world, unlike any other way we think, we think things are in the world. And he thought there were two reasons why those features of rightness and wrongness, those properties of rightness and wrongness, would be uh, very, very strange features or properties. The first thing he said was that if there is a property of rightness, say, out there in the world, <coughs> then that property will have a certain prescriptivity, you might say, about it. It will have a kind of to-be-doneness built into it. It will have a kind of action-guidingness, as Matthew called it, to it. So it will be the sort of feature that basically tells you what to do, that prescribes something to you. And Matthew said, well, that's just very strange, because the normal, you know, the features that we normally think are out there in the world don't seem to do that sort of thing. So the feature that this room has of having a certain number of chairs in it, that doesn't prescribe anything. Or the feature that that object over there has of being a chair, that doesn't prescribe anything. That doesn't have to be done that's built into it. So Matthew thought that that was the first reason why moral properties are very strange. They have this action guidingness to them. And the second thing that he thought would be strange about moral properties if they existed is that recognizing that something has a moral property would have to all by itself motivate you to act in a certain way. Uh, why did he think that? Well, he thought that because it seems very, very plausible to think that when you make a moral judgment, you are at least normally motivated to act in accordance with that judgment. So, for example, when I say giving to family relief is the right thing to do, and then someone comes knocking on the door collecting money for Oxfam, and I just I don't give any money, and I don't seem in the least bit inclined to give any money, well, then you would probably say, well, you don't really think that giving money to family relief is wrong because you're not doing it. You're presented with an opportunity to do it. You could easily do it, and you're not doing it. So that shows that you're not motivated to do it. And that seems to show that, that I don't really think that giving to family relief is the right thing to do. So it seems that there is this strong connection between, well, it's a defeasible connection, but there seems to be some kind of connection between moral judgment and motivation. And that means that if moral judgments are beliefs that aim to represent the world as containing certain properties, then it seems that recognizing properties in this instance would all by itself have to motivate us to act in a certain way. And Mackie thought that that too was very, very strange, because other properties aren't like that. If I form the belief that there is a certain number of people in this room, that can't all by itself motivate me to do anything. It might motivate me in combination with some other methods that if I have a desire not to be in a room that has too many people in it, then it might, it might motivate me to leave the room. But it doesn't seem to be the case that normally beliefs can all by themselves motivate us to do anything. So maybe thought that for those two reasons, those properties that realists are talking about, and that according to him, we attribute to things when we make moral judgments, those properties are very, very strange properties, according to Mackie. 
And he thought that was a good reason for denying that they actually exist. But obviously this is all very, very controversial, and a lot of philosophers have said, well, actually, they're not as strange as you think, or uh, the mere fact that property is strange isn't the reason for denying that it exists. So there's a whole debate about whether this argument actually works, whether it establishes anything at all. But this is the first very influential argument that Mackey put forward. So that's the argument from queerness. Then there's also a second argument that Mackey put forward, which is known as the argument from relativity, or perhaps better, the argument from disagreement. Mackey himself called it the argument from relativity, but it's really an argument about disagreement. And this argument is, in a way, perhaps more intuitive. So the argument from disagreement says, look, we know that there is lots of moral disagreement out there in the world. We don't all agree about what's right and wrong. And in particular, different societies don't agree about what's right and wrong. So let's consider two of those societies. Suppose that there's one society which says monogamy is required. Monogamy is right, and if you're not monogamous, that's wrong. Right? So that's one society. Monogamy is required. Then there's another society which says monogamy is just optional. It's permissible, but you're not required to be monogamous. Right? So this is a disagreement between uh, two different societies, we might say. About, you know, we can sort of imagine how there could be that sort of disagreement in the real world. And we know that in the real world there are lots of disagreements like this. So then Maggie says, okay, well, what is the best explanation for the fact that there is that kind of disagreement? What's the best explanation for the fact that in some societies people say these things are right, and in other societies people say the same things that they're wrong? What explains that kind of disagreement? Well, if realism is right, um, then it seems that what explains the disagreement must be that some of these societies correctly detect the moral properties that are really there. So some of these societies use their faculty of moral intuition, or whatever you want to call it, correctly, and correctly discover that monogamy has this property of being required, say, or perhaps of being um, not required, whatever, you, you know, whatever it happens to be in that particular society. And the other society gets it wrong. And so if you're a realist about this, then it seems that you have to say, of these many things that you have to say, that one of these societies gets it wrong because they fail to correctly detect the moral properties as they really are. And then Maggie says, well, that isn't really, that's, that's not the most plausible explanation of what's going on. The, the most plausible explanation of what's going on is that these societies just have different ways of life. Right? They evolved in different ways. In one of these societies, monogamy has become very important. People have come to regard it as very important. In the other societies, people don't regard it as so important. These people just have different ways of life. They've been socialized in different ways. They've been brought up by their parents in different ways. And that's why one of these societies believes that monogamy is required, and the other society doesn't believe that monogamy is required. So if you agree with Mackie that that's the more plausible explanation, then it seems that you have to agree that these moral properties don't play any role in explaining disagreements. And more generally, that they don't play any role in explaining why people think what they actually think. And if that is so, then it seems that you have a good reason for supposing that those properties don't actually exist. That these properties of rightness and wrongness don't actually exist because they don't play any role in explaining why we think what we think. So those are two, the, the two classical arguments for believing the error theory. Okay, so now I'm going to hand over to Halbert for some doubts about these arguments. Thank you. Well, you're hanging on in there. You're all right. Okay, good. Um, so, uh, 
I'm going to start with a little, little paradox. So one of our most illustrious uh, predecessors as English philosophers, um, although we're not English, but we're pretending to be English. Um, I think it was Bertrand Russell uh, once characterized the activity of philosophers in the following way. Philosophy is the activity of inferring from premises that are so obvious that no one can deny them, by means of inferences that are so obvious that no one can deny them, conclusions that are so absurd that no one can believe them. <laughs> what he had in mind when he said that was an argument by one of his teachers, um, McTaggart, who claimed to have proved the non-existence of time. Right, so put that in the pipe and smoke it. Now, one way of thinking about arguments, like arguments of the error theory, the ones we've just heard, is as instances of that kind of activity. I'm going to give you another one, just for good measure, because I know this is something else that Barth has thought a lot about. So here's another kind of argument, and I'm just going to make up a version of it now. Suppose that you think that if something is wrong to do, then it's an obligation on you not to do it. And if it's an obligation on you not to do it, then it's got to be a case that you're responsible for doing it or not doing it. If you're responsible for doing it or not doing it, then it's got to be possible for you to have been able to act otherwise than you did, whether you did it or didn't do it. But unfortunately, it's not the case that anyone is ever able to do otherwise than they did because there is no freedom of the will. And so moving backwards through that inference pattern, we can infer that it's never wrong for you to do anything. Some people have made that argument. Some people believe it's a good argument. But most philosophers who are interested in that kind of argument don't necessarily think that the interest of being, being concerned with it is because you want to get to the conclusion and hold on to it as something that you believe. You might just think that if you can infer something like that, then something must have gone wrong somewhere. And what reflecting on arguments of this kind allows you to do, from this way of, of picturing what's going on, is to sharpen your thoughts about what it is you think you're committed to. When you have a view about what it is for something satanly or obligatory or wrong, and what that involves, <coughs> put those thoughts together and see where it is things begin to jar to avoid that absurd conclusion. And I think to some extent, that's the in real interest of these arguments for the moral error theory. So I don't buy any of these arguments myself. But I think they're kind of interesting. Because if you look at each of the premises in isolation, they don't look evidently absurd. But when you put them together, you seem to get something that is evidently absurd. So what we can do then is start to look at some of them and see whether we really have to be committed to them in the way that the error theorist needs us to be committed to them in order to say that the thing the error theorist says. Take each premise and ask yourself, is that really true? And then you can also ask yourself, suppose we believe, say, the first two premises are one of those arguments, does it follow that I have to go to the third one? Could there be an invalid step? And you look for that. And that's just the sort of thinking that so much of the, sort of the perennial problems of philosophy are made up of whether it's about the existence of a self, the existence of an external world, the existence of material objects, 
all these things that philosophers are laughed at in the world at large for wondering about. You might think, why are they asking those questions? Well, one of the reasons they might be asking those is they think, well, let's try and articulate what we think we really mean when we say those things. And do we really have a good grasp of what it, what it amounts to? So, for example, take this argument that <coughs> Barth considered about this idea that there had to be these queer moral properties out there. Because if my claims about something being right or wrong were true, then they had to be made true by these properties, which are such that if someone grasps them, they're automatically sucked towards them by some kind of a supernatural magic. And how could there ever be such a thing in the world? Well, then you might ask yourself the following question. Who ever thought that when I said that murder was wrong, I was presupposing anything about any kind of super magic thing sucking me towards it when I grasped it? Well, that's a challenge. Well, can I articulate that challenge in a slightly better way to try and get off the hook in this argument? Well, perhaps I might try reflecting on the following thought. Suppose that I believe that it's right to give to charity, and it actually is right to give to charity. So I'm motivated to give to charity in accordance with this premise of the argument, which said that when someone makes a moral judgment, they have a motivation to, to act accordingly. So in the first scenario you're imagining, you believe it's right to give to charity, and you're motivated to give to charity. Just to follow that, it's the fact that it's right to give to charity that's pulling you towards it in some magical kind of way. Well, not obviously. Because imagine the following scenario. Imagine that the charity that you were going to give money to um, has just been taken over by a bunch of homicidal terrorists. But you don't know that. Your evidence is just like it was before. So just as in the first scenario, in the second scenario, you believe that it's right to give to charity, but it's no longer a fact that it's right for you to give to charity. Ask yourself the following question. Are you still motivated to give to charity? Some people would say, well, of course you are, because you make the judgments that it's right to give to charity. But then, what is it that's doing the magic pulling? Well, it can't be the fact that it's right to give to charity, because in the second case, it's not there. So what is it? Well, it's something in here. What's doing the pulling is your belief itself, the attitude, or whatever it is that consists in, that, that your judgment that it's right to give to charity consists in. It's not out there, it's in here. And when you think about it, since we all have desires and attitudes and likes and dislikes, there's nothing mysterious about something inside of someone's mind motivating someone to give to charity. So this idea that there was something deeply mysterious out there that had to be the case in order for my judgment of giving to charity this life to be true, this seems to be based on loading into my common sense belief, my ordinary thought that something is right or wrong, an implausible presupposition about the metaphysical structure of the universe, which doesn't seem to be very plausible on reflection. So that's one thing that somebody might say in response to that argument. And of course, that was just one premise of that argument, and it might be that what I said doesn't work against it. So, but instead of going through premise by premise of each of those two arguments, I could have done that, but maybe you'd like to do that, I'd like to give you another couple of thoughts about why one want to, might be suspicious of this kind of error theoretic position. So sometimes the error theory is, 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 is defined to tell us something about the essence of moral judgment. 
But we all make moral judgments. We do it all the time. And this error theory, as I've defined it now, is something that says something about what necessarily goes on when we make those judgments all the time. But suppose I put it to you thus, that the error theory can't really be plausible about something that essentially goes on every time you make a moral judgment. But it could be true about some of the judgments you make. Or it could be true of some of the judgments some people make sometimes. Because one of the things that we know about morality is that it has developed over a very long period of time, from a very primitive state, before people had a lot of theoretical vocabulary to talk, to talk about morality, to a situation like now, where we have a hyper-theoretical vocabulary to talk about morality. Well, imagine at some point in that process, in some bits of history, in some places, people have started associating certain commitments with their moral judgments. Maybe some of those commitments were false. Suppose, for example, you think, as someone very close to me apparently still thinks, that if someone does bad things, they will always get their comeuppance. So you shouldn't be sorry if they're always bad to you, and you shouldn't hold it against them. Well, that's an interesting thought. Why would they believe that? Well, it might be because they associate their moral thoughts with a certain kind of worldview where there is some being that makes sure that at the end of the day, maybe not in this life, then in some other life, everything's going to be all right. Now, if you take your moral judgment, don't hold it against people if they're being bad to you, and allow yourself to attach that to some kind of com commitment to infer these kinds of things based on your further commitment to this view that there is this being that's going to make everything all right, then it might be that the way you use moral judgments commits you to certain kinds of confusions if you don't believe there is such a being. I haven't said there isn't, there isn't. But if you don't believe there is one, then you can see someone can get themselves tangled in that kind of web. And it might be that some of those things that say Mackey in his argument from clearness that Marx explained so clearly, that he associated with the commitment of moral judgments, are the sorts of things that people have come to associate with them because they've mixed their moral judgments with certain kinds of worldviews about you know, the origin of man and woman and the nature of the universe. And things have become a little bit entangled. But it doesn't follow from the fact that that's become entangled in a certain time and place, that there isn't anything that you can, as it were, detach from that, which is a disapproval towards certain things, which just is a perfectly sensible and, if you like, true attitude towards those things, say that murder is wrong. So I think one should be suspicious of these claims that the error theorists make, insofar as they're supposed to be claims about the essence of moral judgments, as such. And again, if you look at the history of the subject, where people have had these kinds of skeptical attitudes towards aspects of morality along error theoretic terms, very often they have been targeted at specific kinds of judgments. So for example, in the argument I gave about moral wrongness depending on some notion of free will, it went through the notion of an obligation. It might be that it's only the notion of obligation that implies something about someone being responsible and therefore something about them being able to act otherwise. Whereas if I put in another moral term there, like it would be a good thing if, there wouldn't be such a connection between that idea and someone being responsible and someone being able to, to act otherwise. I mean, imagine, suppose I, for example, think that you're all mechanized robots. You have no free will, you have no responsibility. So perhaps I can't say that you are under any obligations if I buy that argument. 
But it seems I could still say to you, it would be better if you didn't behave this way, if you're being honest. <coughs> because the it would be better if locution seems to ad address me insofar as I'm evaluating the state of affairs. And I don't have to necessarily associate that with something that goes via your will in a certain kind of way. So those are just some ways in which somebody might respond to these kinds of arguments. And also some broader theoretical uh, levers by means of which we can think of these arguments as, I think, worthwhile thinking about, even if we don't always believe in their conclusions. Okay, well, um, I think I agree with a lot of the things that Hal just told you. So I agree that these arguments that Matthew puts forward, even though they are the classical arguments that start the whole debate, probably those arguments as they stand aren't completely convincing. So Matthew makes a lot of this to be doneness that these you know, the properties like rightness and wrongness are supposed to have built into them, but it isn't as exactly clear what that what that charge is supposed to come down to. And I think the reply that Halbert outlined to the charge that these properties are supposed to be, you know, are supposed to motivate you all on their own, that's, that's a good reply to that because you, as Halbert did, you might say, well, look, sometimes we have mistaken moral beliefs and those beliefs motivate us as well. So that seems to suggest that it's not the properties out there that do the motivating, it's the beliefs that do the motivating. That might still be a little bit strange, but it's not a strange feature of those properties. So it does seem to me that the arguments, as Mackey put them forward, even though they are very suggestive and they've been very influential, it does seem to me that there are perhaps good replies to those arguments. And I also agree with Halvard that it's always the case in philosophy that people put forward arguments from premises and they reach a certain conclusion. If you don't like the conclusion, you can always start doubting the premises. Right? That's always the case in philosophy. So the arguments start from certain premises, they reach a certain conclusion. Maybe initially you believe that the premises were true, but then you look at the conclusion and you think, oh my, that, that can't be right. And then you reject the premises because you reject the conclusion. That's always a possibility. So that, that too is right, I think. But I do think that there is, even though Mackey's arguments perhaps weren't exactly on target, I do think that there is something problematic about moral thought that isn't really um, resolved by the other views about what moral thought is supposed to be. And I think maybe the way to bring that out is to ask yourself some questions about the other possible views here. Right? So one important possible view here, as Halbert mentioned, is expressivism. And expressivists say that when I say that something is right or wrong, I'm expressing my attitudes, my feelings, or my emotions towards something. So let's ask ourselves whether we believe that view, and if we don't believe it, why we don't believe it. So I don't believe that view. I'll just tell you why I don't believe it. So I don't believe that view, and the reason why I don't believe that view is that it seems to me that when I have a moral disagreement with somebody else, it just doesn't seem to get that right to say, well, what's going on there is that I am expressing my emotions, and the other person is also expressing his emotions or her emotions. And there is a clash between those emotions, because those emotions are not the same emotions towards the particular thing that you are disagreeing about. And that's all there is to it. That's all there is to it. There is nothing out there in the world, there's nothing in general actually, that makes any of these emotions correct or incorrect. It just so happens that I feel a certain way about genocide, say. 
and Gaddafi feels a different way about genocide. And we have this, we have these different emotions. That's all there is to it. It's not the case that I'm correct and Gaddafi is incorrect. It's just a clash of emotions, really. And if you're an expressivist, then it's always going to be the case that that is, I mean, expressivists don't agree with what I'm saying now, but I do think that if you're an expressivist, it's always going to be the case that in the end, it's, it's disagreements are just a matter of clashing emotions. <coughs> and it just seems to me that that's not the right description of what's going on when I say that genocide is always wrong and someone else says that genocide is perhaps sometimes permissible. And so it just seems to me that, that doesn't get it right. And the reason why it doesn't get it right, I think, is that the description is too symmetrical. Right? It's just that I have these attitudes, the other person has different attitudes, and that's it. And that's too symmetrical because it seems to me that there must be, at least it seems to me that I'm assuming, or I'm thinking that there's something out there in the world that makes me right and the other person wrong. Right? So that's why it seems to me that moral judgments are beliefs about something in the world. Because otherwise, Moral disagreements are too symmetrical. Otherwise, they're not even purported to be about something that you can really get right and really get wrong. So suppose you, I mean, maybe you don't agree with me about that, but suppose you agree. Well, then it seems that you too are committed to the thought that moral judgments are beliefs that attribute properties to things, that you can get these property attributions right or wrong. So when I say genocide is always wrong, then I'm getting my property attribution right, presumably, what I'm saying is correct. Uh, and when Gaddafi says, well, genocide is sometimes permissible, then he's getting it wrong. What he's saying is just incorrect. He's not getting his property attribution correct, because as a matter of fact, genocide has the property of always being wrong. Right? So suppose you agree with me about that. Well then, there are real questions. So maybe, maybe Mackie didn't ask the right questions about the, that property of wrongness. But there are real questions about what you might call the metaphysical status of that property. Because it doesn't seem to be the sort of property that we can discover by doing empirical investigation, right? by doing the sort of investigation that scientists do. We can't just look at the world and use our eyes and use our senses to discover, well, at least it seems we can't, whether genocide is the property of being wrong or being right. Obviously, our senses will play a role and that's because we need to know about very many natural properties or uh, empirically discoverable properties that genocide has in order to conclude that it's wrong. But these empirically discoverable properties will never completely decide the matter. And one way to see that is to ask yourself, is it up to scientists to decide whether genocide is right or wrong? Should we ask scientists whether euthanasia is permissible or not? Should we ask scientists whether murder is right or wrong? And the answer seems obvious. We shouldn't. Because science isn't about that sort of thing. And that seems to suggest that rightness and wrongness are not empirically discoverable property. So, so if you've, maybe you haven't agreed with me, but if you've agreed with me, then we've reached the following conclusion. We've reached the conclusion that moral judgments are beliefs, and they're about properties of rightness and wrongness, but science can't tell us which things have those properties and which things don't have those properties. And more generally, we can't empirically discover whether things have those properties. And then there are real questions about the status of those properties. If we can't discover them empirically, how do we discover that things have those properties? Um, Given that there are disagreements about which things have these properties, how do we go about deciding those disagreements? 
in a way that is in accord with the objective pretensions of what we're saying. When we have a, a, a disagreement about some empirical matter of fact, it seems clear how we should go about deciding that. We should do empirical investigation, and we should use science, and presumably we can get at you know, what's actually the case by doing that. And it seems <coughs> that we just have no method at all like that when it comes to moral matters. And that is a real reason to be suspicious about those moral properties. Right, so let's step away a little bit from the actual arguments that Mackey gave. And let's think about the sort of deeper considerations that motivated the arguments. So the deeper considerations, it seems to me, are first of all, that expressivist and subjectivist views don't get things right. They're just too subjective. We're not just expressing our feelings. I mean, we're also expressing our feelings, presumably, when we make moral judgments, but we're not just expressing our feelings. We're also at least trying to say something about what's actually the case. But the thing that we are trying to say is the case is a very mysterious sort of thing, because we can't discover by empirical investigation um, whether that thing actually obtains or not. And that's a reason to uh, be suspicious about whether those properties that presumably we're talking about really exist. Right? So that's a more general, more intuitive perhaps, motivation for moving towards an error theory. And the other thing I want to say is about this point that Halbert made, that whenever we're confronted with a philosophical argument, uh, and we don't, you know, we really can't bring ourselves to believe the conclusion. We don't like the conclusion. Then we should just reject one or more of the premises. And I'm suspicious about that sort of move, actually. And I'm suspicious about it specifically in the case of the error theory, because I think that we should ask ourselves: Why is it that we can't accept the conclusion? You know, if if we is it because the conclusion is actually false? Or is it because we just can't bring ourselves to accept the conclusion? And if, it's, if, if the reason why we feel compelled to reject some of the premises is that we just can't bring ourselves to accept the conclusion, then maybe that's not such a very good reason for, for rejecting the premises. So what I'm thinking about here is that it might be that we are maybe biologically or in some other way con constituted in such a way that we just can't help making moral judgments. We, it might be the case that we just can't help um, saying, you know, making these judgments, having these thoughts about what's right and wrong and obligatory and permissible and what's virtuous and vicious and so on. Or some thoughts like that we just have to have. Um, and that's not because they actually accurately represent anything in the world, even though they purport to do, but it's not, it's not because they, there actually are such things in the world, but just because we can't help it. If that's the reason why we have trouble accepting the conclusion of the error theory, and that might well be the reason why we have trouble accepting the conclusion of Mackey's arguments, if that's really the reason that we just can't help holding on to our moral judgments, then it seems to me that's not a very good reason for rejecting the premises of Mackey's arguments. And therefore, it's not a very good reason for saying that the error theory isn't true. Right? So to put it very simply, the mere fact that you can't bring yourself to believe something isn't always a good reason for saying that the thing isn't true. Because if, there, if there's a good explanation for why you can't believe it, that doesn't involve the thing's truth, or the, 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 thing's, the, the falsity of what it is that you can't believe, then perhaps that doesn't give you a good reason to reject the premises of an argument that leads to it. 
course. Um, so one of the most dangerous things uh, to look out for from a philosopher is appealing to authority. I've already done it once with Russell, and we're going to do it again with Wittgenstein. Um, this is idea, this idea about it's true, but you can't believe it. Maybe there are some things that are true that we can't believe in. But then we have to ask ourselves, what do we do with that conviction? And Wittgenstein said in another context that a nothing is as good as a something about which nothing can be said. And I think that problem reveals itself for the error theorist who believes that we can't believe the error theory. Because if you thought that the error theory gave us some interesting insight into the nature of what we're doing when we're making moral judgment, but it's some kind of truth that we can't believe in, then how is that related to what we're doing when we're going about trying to live as well as possible? How does it feed into the thought that you make a comparative judgment about whether or not it's better or worse to go up and slap a stranger in the face just because you feel like it or not, for example? How does it, how does it feed into that? How does this falsehood that I just can't buy into uh, uh, relate to my deliberation in that situation? And there's a very quick answer to that uh, question. It's got nothing to do with it whatsoever. Think about it in terms of uh, the history of developing human moral thought, right? Our distant ancestors living around in some strange jungle-like scenario. Uh, the person is standing on one side of the lake, sees at the other side of the lake a set of parents whose child has fallen into the water. The child crawls out of the water, just not able to get out, and the parents just shove it back in and wait until it's dead. The person on the other side of the lake gets very angry, runs around to the other lake and shouts at them. Right? Now, at what point in this story is this person who gets angry at the people pushing the child into the water beginning to make a mistake? Is it when they feel angry at the people doing it? Is it when they go over and shout at them? Is it when they put it into words that the people shouldn't be doing it? Is it when they put it into the words of the following kind? It is wrong of you to put the child back into the water. Right? Suddenly, by putting it into this, this form, this linguistic form, it is wrong of you to do it regardless of whether you like it or not. Somehow, not, suddenly, I'm supposed to be making a mistake. Why am I supposed to be making a mistake? Because a philosopher has told me that when you make a statement of that form, it has a certain linguistic structure, which we can model in terms of its truth conditions. And what truth is, is to be corresponding to something out in the world. And the way we make sense of that is in terms of this thing called the, called the property in an object. Well, to which the response is, just go and get yourself another theory of language. That's, ve that's very, very uh, provocative, but I think there is something to be said for that in this, in this particular case. So that, I think, is a, a strong enough statement on which to open the discussion. Do you want to say anything in response to that first? No, I think that's fine. I think we should, we should see if there are any questions. Just my question is about the <coughs> problem, the essence of, essence of the question, the element, the main element. Don't you think that the main point that we are confused about these theories is that we're not clear that there are different interpretations of good and bad for people. Then based on those interpretations, we try to justify and following them make a decision. We need to move a little bit backward and find that why do we think that this is right? Because my interpretation of right says me that this is right to do. And following that, I try to justify myself. Because even the person who does wrong, from my point of view, if I speak to him, he says, no, I think I'm right and he tries to justify it to me. The person who commits murder, if you speak to him, he's got his own reasons. He tries to justify it. He doesn't believe that that's wrong. No, I think I did the right thing and start to justify it because of 
so many different questions, different answers, one of them. I think the main question we need to find out is why there are different interpretations of good and bad. Different people. Can I say something about that? How it relates to thoughts about error in making moral judgments. So one of the things that might be going on in, the, in, a, in a situation like that is that someone is engaging in what some people call confabulation, which is this idea that you approve of something, so you have an emotion in favor of it or against it. And that kind of comes kind of intuitively very quickly. So you go and kill the bastard. Right? And then someone says, why did you do that? And you say, because of this, 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 and this. But those reasons that you give weren't there in advance of you deciding to do the thing. They're there for you to back up the thing that you felt. Right? What about the time when I've got the reasons beforehand? Someone is doing something wrong to my family, I plan to kill him. Okay, so that's that's a, that's another case. So that feeds back into Bart's example of the of the argument from relativity. Perhaps you'd like to say something about that, Bart. Well, um Just to add something else, uh, what I was trying to say that above the point of the subjectivity or objectivity of the moral, I think the point is that we need to find out about interpretation. It's not a matter of being objective or subjective. If you want to find the answer for this objective, subjective, we're going to spend the rest of our life to find it. Because as you say, we can't prove it and we can't deny it. They are there. But we haven't got enough experience, we haven't got enough evidence to prove them. It's not science. I think it's quite important what you mean by interpretation, right? So, uh, so suppose that you know, someone's killed somebody else, and you say that was wrong, and this person's trying to justify himself or herself for killing somebody else. But it might be, so as Halford said, it might be, you know, there might be some kind of psychological mechanism that's, 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 that's interfering there. Um, but suppose that's not the case, right? Suppose this, thing, this person is thinking clearly. Well, then there are two things that, it seems to me there are two things you might be disagreeing about. It's very plausible that probably you're disagreeing about the facts of the case, right? so the natural facts of the case. So it might be that you, know, you don't know certain things about the case, or this person is just not facing up to certain facts about the case, and, that, and that's why he or she is saying that this, this person was actually not wrong. Or it might be that you just have fundamentally different moral views. So this person might say, uh, if someone or might, you know, might, might be more ready to say that if someone insults you, that's a reason for violence. Than you are. So, so if and, and if the disagreement is just about the natural facts of the case, and it really and it isn't really relevant, I think, to the argument from disagreement, because what Mackey is thinking about is a disagreement where everybody's clear about what the what the sort of empirical facts of the case are. So if you if you think back over the example of two societies and they disagree about monogamy. We're supposed to imagine that everybody knows what the effects are of not being monogamous and, and, and you know, what, what, the, what effects it has, maybe on children and the rest of society and so on. Everybody knows about this. But even, even given that people agree about all the empirical methods of Mackey, they still disagree about the moral status of monogamy. And Mackey wants to say, well, it's, it's that. It's disagreements <coughs> like that, which seem completely intractable. It seems that there is, really isn't much more you can say at that point, because you can't point to empirical things that might justify one judgment or the other. It's disagreements like that that seem very intractable that should make us doubt that there really is a property of wrongness there. So, does, does that sort of... Question in the middle. Um, first, the back of the... So, yeah, this one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, I just wanted to ask, 
not necessarily, but it is something more crucial in that direction. I, mean, I think something that's very clear is that um, if you are a very strong realist in a certain area, as if you think, well, the, the physical world is real, and it's really real, and, not, you know, and, 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 and for when it comes to empirical matters of fact, we should accept some kind of correspondence theory of truth. So if I say something, about the empirical world that makes that true is that it corresponds to something that's really out there, it's the empirical world. I mean, if you hold that sort of view, then you're probably more likely to be an error theorist about morality. Whereas if you have a sort of weaker, if you hold a sort of weaker realism about the empirical world, or not a realism about the empirical world, then you will be much less driven to think that there's something defective about moral thought. You won't be I guess the thing is that then you won't, then moral thought won't compare so unfavorably to the language of physics. So, so there is a kind of connection. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to add to that, that of course one of the views that I outlined at the beginning, which allows us to think that moral judgments claim to be correct in some way, and that they are, makes no assumption about what that means, being something that has to do with facts out there in the world, physical or otherwise. So you might, for example, think that you have access to certain truths about what ought or not to be done, or what's good or bad, which are just graspable through the operations of your human reason. And that human reason may well be instantiated purely physically, and there might be nothing more that God has to do to make you have that reason and to make a physical world. How do you know whether there are any such truths? Well, suppose you ask yourself, are there some things that are so plausible such that if you properly understand them, you couldn't sensibly or rationally deny them. If the answer to the question, whether there are such things, is yes, then, you know, at least in one case or more, you'll have some truths. So that's another possibility. Okay, we have a question. Yes, I wonder whether the whole argument isn't, isn't being framed too individualistically. Um, we seem to have a subject isolated in a world. The subject is set up against the world, and then there is judgment made here. I, I miss one of the words I miss is consensus, which is um, when I say this is wrong, I may well simply be reaching for a social consensus of which I am myself a part. It's a fact about human beings that they're social animals. We cannot even think without thinking within the context of a culture. And consensus is actually the basis not only of our moral judgments, it's also the basis of most of our physical judgments too. <coughs> Almost the whole of my astronomical belief is based upon a consensus is based on consensus of some experts. And there is a long chain of uh, connection with this. And it seems to me that the discussion must at least accommodate this if it is to be realistic about the nature of moral judgments. Somehow, when I say murder is wrong, I am not speak. I am neither referring to a fact out there in the world in the physical sense, but nor am I referring simply to something inside me. I am calling upon the common opinion of my society. And that is why it's so jolting when I reach it, when I find another society that has a different consensus. Well, I think this is uh, very important from the purposes of thinking about 
what has to be the case for something like an error theory to be true. Because it has to be the case that we are presupposing that when we make claims such as murder is wrong, we have in mind something that demands a lot more than, for example, us being able to find something that allows us to get along. And if it's true, as you say, that one of the main motivating factors for making such claims is that we are trying to find ways to get along, it might be that some of us, when we ask, are asked about our attitude towards scenarios that go beyond that, we, maybe we don't have a strong view. The most important thing is that we get along. In which case, you can't pin on us some motiv motivation or some con conviction that is erroneous if there's anything more to it than that. But I, I, sh I surely agree with you that the social dimension is, is very important. And to some extent, the taxonomy that I started with uh, reveals itself in its um, tendentiousness by the fact of having left that out. So that's one of the reasons for <laughs> taking seriously my caveat. Okay. Well, I think, uh, so it is important to ask yourself, well, do I think that consensus makes moral judgments true or false? So it's true that obviously one of the things we're doing in moral discourse is trying to reach consensus and that has social benefits and the reason why we're doing it and the good reason why we're doing it. But do you think that the mere fact that there is consensus about something makes a consensus about a certain judgment, makes that judgment the right or the correct judgment to make? And it seems that, I mean, it seems to me at least, and I think most error theorists would say, well, that is not quite right. So consensus is important, but consensus can't make a moral judgment correct. Because it's essential to moral thought that people uh, might go against the majority and be right. right. So when slavery was widespread, presumably at some point the first person stood up and said, well, actually, slavery is wrong, and here are the reasons why it's wrong. And that person was right, even though he went against the consensus of his society. And so a typical error theorist or and, and, and a typical realist, I think, would say, well, consensus is important, but consensus can't be the thing that makes these judgments correct. What you're saying is not peculiar to moral theory, however, it's repeatedly true of science. The science, the science of the physical world. Uh, again, there is somebody who stands up and says, the earth doesn't go around it's the earth. The, earth, the, earth, the sun isn't going around the earth. Right, right. That's um, so so um, we, 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 we obviously have an interplay of consensus and something else. Yes. Uh, to get the, the driving all our judgments. And the question for the error theorist, surely, is what is the something else? That's right, that's right, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I think the judge the error theory as well as moral realism presuppose that rationality in morals is bound to the stating of facts so that our ability to give reasons for our moral judgments to make a rational moral judgment hinges on there being external facts and moral judgments being true or at least truth at. But why should that be the case? I mean, there are many theories, I think, which can be expressivist, but nevertheless extremely rationalist. For example, Hare's theories or Gibbert's th uh, uh, theory. Hare, for example, would certainly say that moral judgments do not consist in the stating of facts, but nevertheless there are rules imposed by the logic of moral concepts which uh, generate certain uh, rules of reasoning which make it rational for everybody to reach certain moral conclusions. So I also think that for an ex expressivist, uh, moral disagreement would not 
necessarily be merely a clash of attitudes. He would simply say that moral disagreements consist about arguing what kind of attitudes it is rational to have. And perhaps this dichotomy between facts on the one side and irrationalism on the other side might be a little bit too narrow. I've got a suspicion against the error. I think that's a very fair point. I mean, uh, expressivists have developed views that are very, very sophisticated, and you know, and, and, and what I said about them was, you're right, that's far too sophisticated. You can't just re you know, refute them all by just saying, well, this is too subjectivist. But I do think there is sort of grain of truth in the charge that all these views are subjectivist, because um, although many of these views try to um, mimic realist thoughts by, I mean, they would call it mimicking, but they, I do think they try to mimic realist thoughts by giving non-cognitivist interpretations of the sorts of things that realists would say. Um, what they're really doing is sort of piling on the attitudes on both sides of a disagreement, right? So if you look at, for example, so, so to just take one example. So um, if you have a moral disagreement with somebody else, so you say genocide is wrong, and the other person says, well, genocide is sometimes permissible, um, you might say, well, genocide would be wrong no matter what I thought about this. That's a thought about mind independence. Even if I thought genocide was right, it would still actually be wrong. Right? So that's a, that's a kind of plausible thought, I think. I mean, I think that even if I was indoctrinated to think that genocide is right, as a matter of fact, it would still be wrong. So that's a sort of realist thought. Now, non-cognitivists have said, or expressivists have said, well, really what's going on there is that that, that isn't really a realist thought. Really what's going on there is that you're expressing your disapproval of an alternative version of yourself who was raised in a different way or was indoctrinated with something who approves of genocide. Now it seems to me that, I mean, that, that, that's a, a, a promising initial interpretation. But now think about a disagreement between two people. So uh, they are both expressing uh, feelings of approval and disapproval. So one of them is disapproving of genocide, the other is approving of genocide. And they might both say, well, I'm also disapproving of alternative versions of myself who have different attitudes of approval and disapproval. But they're both doing that. It's still symmetrical. And all that the expressiveness is doing is piling on further attitudes. And there's still nothing out there in the world that can make one of the parties in the dispute correct and the other incorrect. So, so it's, a, it's a very good point. But I, I think that, I guess, and I think most error theorists would say, most realists would say, that if you pursue this really to, to, the, to the bottom of the issue, you will still find that there's something subjectivist about expressivism. But perhaps nothing would hide an expressivist from saying that these terms do not only have an expressive content, but also descriptive content which allows us to argue rationally about these questions because they are also somehow linked to the world. They have criteria of applications, and these can be right or wrong, even if they are uh, primarily expressive. Perhaps that will be solution. Yes, yeah. yeah. maybe I could add uh, to this at some point, but <coughs> on the expressivist's behalf. Some of my friends are expressive. <laughs> um, one of the things that, that Bart said in response to your question, um, I think will ring alarm bells in the eyes of some expressivists. He says that what's happening when you're having this discussion about the killing of innocent people on a large scale, one person approves, one person disapproves, what you're just doing is piling on the attitude. 
I think some expressivists will say that they won't accept that description of what's going on. Not because when you step outside of moral thought and look at it from the outside, that's not what's going on, but precisely because there's a kind of stepping outside of what's going on that's presupposed by saying that. That's just not possible. So I think many expressives would say that precisely why it's wrong to say that it's just piling on more attitudes when two people disagree about something like that. What's going on is that someone is uttering <coughs> what is in itself another attitude. If I say to you, having a disagreement with someone else, you guys are just piling on another attitude. What I'm doing, according to some expressives, I'm just expressing an indifference to the answer to that question. You're just piling on more attitudes. There's nothing in it. But if you really care about the issue, if, you, if you're really committed to making, working out what the answer is, you won't accept that description of the case. You will be pushing on as far as you can. And maybe, in some situations, some particular situations, you'll think, well, maybe there isn't an answer here. Maybe the two <coughs> options are as good as the other. But the chances are, in the case of somebody saying genocide is right and someone saying genocide is wrong, you will not go that because you think that nothing anyone is ever going to say to you that's going to be remotely plausible is going to convince you about one of those conclusions, and I'm not going to tell you which one it is. Okay, uh, question for Now, it seems to me there's another consideration that ought to be taken into account. If I look at my own morals, I have a moral that I shouldn't kill people, and I'm not likely to go against that. I have a moral that I shouldn't treat at cards. Um, that's not a strong moral. I might sometimes. But <coughs> there's a whole range of how strong my morals are. Some are always obeyed, some are sometimes obeyed, some are ignored, even though I know I'm doing wrong. I will continue to do so. So morality isn't a sort of black or white. And it, it seems to me that some consideration ought to be given that and looking at the various ways of thinking about morality. I think you're right about, about that. I think that there is a, an important um, um, task that anyone who tries to give an account of what moral judgments aim to do and what they succeed to do in dividing up the task into different kinds of moral attitudes that they're not all the same. So it's different to say that something is obligatory than to say that it's a desirable thing to do. And that might be part of what's happening in the case of, of some of these values that, that we find more defeasible. Because we don't think that they have a certain kind of importance. We don't attach the kind of significance to them that we attach to other kinds of things. And our moral vocabulary is very complex in that sort of way. We talk about what's good, we talk about what's right, we talk about what's, what we ought to do, what it, be, would it be, what it would be nicer for us the case. And these are different kinds of moral attitudes that we have. And to think that you could give an account of all moral thought, which was just the same for all these different kinds of, 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 of ways of thinking, I think, yeah, it's important. I think you're right about that. I agree. <coughs> Question of the back. Worse and worse. Is that we, um, like we're not living in 
something called suffering, something called <coughs> pleasure and enjoyment. And I think part of the paradoxical feature of some of these accounts of moral thought is that at some level they're telling us that it, it's not really like that, that when you say that some of those things really matter. In fact, if you take the view that, that Bart was illustrating earlier <coughs> on and, 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 and transfer it to this kind of case, the thought would be this, that it doesn't really matter whether something causes suffering or whether it causes enjoyment, but we can't help but thinking that it does. And I guess my response to that at that point in the, in, in the conversation was, well, let's suppose that that was true in some sense. That kind of leaves unanswered the question. The practical, deliberative question I have to ask myself every day when I get up is, am I going to produce some pain or am I going to produce some suffering? And I'm going to have to work that out. And it looks like if, if this kind of theory, this kind of way of looking at moral thought has nothing to say to that, then there is something else we have to say on top of it. Which is why that some people who have endorsed this kind of error theoretical view of morality have then gone on to do that other stuff. So John Mackey, who Bob talked about uh, earlier on, who gave these two arguments for the error theory, he wrote this book. It's about 250 pages long. In the first 49 pages, he tells us that morality is an illusion. And in the rest of the book, he talks about whether we should be utilitarians or contractarians, and what kind of society there should be, and whether there are rights. You think, how can you do that? Well, it looks like something was left out of the equation when you decided it was an illusion. Because you don't really have a choice but to start deliberating once that's done. But we, if, don't you think there's something innate in like, or something like that, some kind of morality that's inside them? If you see someone walking, like you're walking down the road and <coughs> someone's lying dead, half dead on the road, like, wouldn't your natural instinct be to help them? Or wouldn't everyone's natural instinct be to help them? My natural instinct is to help them. I'm afraid that not everybody's instinct is to help them. And for some people, it depends on who they are and how they look, unfortunately. But the interesting question about innateness, I think, is, a, is an important one. I think there's a lot of uncertainty at the moment about quite in what sense morality is innate. And what about morality is innate? Perhaps it's plausible to say that there are certain kind of proto-moral reactions we have that are innate, certain kinds of feelings that we have. But the way that we've articulated them in language and the way they've become socialized might not be innate. That might be something that's contingent on the societies in which we live. But even if it's not innate, that is to say, it's not there as it were before experience, of course it must still be there in all societies. So it's arguable that even if Mackey is right to say that societies have different values, there are also lots of things that societies seem to have in common. Like societies seem to have in common norms that allow people to cooperate. Don't you think the differences in societies then, more than what they think is right or wrong, that might be something else influenced by something else? <coughs> Whatever innateness we have has been changed by something else, like what they think is uh, like some kind of ignorance expressed in some other way, like, I don't know, oppressing women or different forms, like in different societies, women are oppressed in different kinds of ways, some thoughts in response to that. So the first one is, it might be that a lot of disagreement in morality is based on what Bart said, is disagreement about non-moral matters. People are confused, ignorant about certain facts of the world. And that leads us uh, to make different moral judgments. So that if we knew those facts, if we agreed on them, there'd be less disagreement. To think that once all those disagreements were weeded out, we would all in fact agree, it's a possibility. It's a very 
very optimistic claim. On the second idea that you mentioned, which is the idea that we all disagree because we've become confused because in some sense we've fallen from an original state where we have the correct value. I think that depends on some theories that in some sense extend beyond the nature of morality about what kind of beings we are and how we got there. And of course there are you know, views about, about humankind which, which explicitly state that we have been created in the image of, of some, uh, some being that has given us the capacity to, to, to access these truths and in some sense we have fallen. But it's a very controversial view. So I'm not expressing a religious answer saying that we, there's something inside of us that might, we know what's right or wrong, we're just expressing our selfishness in different ways uh, on things. In, in different cultures, there's, mm -hmm. there's some kind of collective stupidity that includes suffering of people. And it's that, that, that's what's called directive, so we've heard from the wrong way. I mean, collective stupidity is something <laughs> we can have a lot of experience. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think another thing that's important to keep in mind here, I think, is that. <clears throat> The mere fact that some impulse or way of thinking is innate, we seem to think that the mere thing that something is innate, the mere fact that something is innate, doesn't make it wrong. So it's probably true that some kind of hostility towards outsiders is innate. And there are probably good evolutionary explanations for why that is innate to some extent. But we think that that is wrong, and we try to overcome that in morally educated children. So I suppose it would be, maybe you don't think that's the case, but, but that could well be the case, right? So the point would be that the mere fact that something is innate doesn't settle whether it's right or wrong. But no, wouldn't you help someone on the road to find their object? No, absolutely. I, so I agree that it's right to help somebody who's, uh, who's, who's, uh, lying in the, who's lying in the road. But the point is that you haven't established that merely by showing that it's innate. It might well be innate, but that doesn't settle whether helping someone is right or wrong. And that's shown by the fact that we think that there are other things that are also innate, like hostility mm -hmm. to yeah. some, some, some degree of hostility towards outsiders, which, which is innate, but it's wrong. So what well, about the innate that's, So we are good and bad. We should quite want to say that we're innate. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Question at the back there. Um,
So I, don't, I wouldn't want to rule out this view, that view a priori. But I think my suspicion about it is simply this, um, that I find it difficult to be convinced that the description we've given of what moral, moral judgments are trying to do, as such, essentially, qua being moral judgments, right, effectively and necessarily entail those ontological commitments. So I'm not, so I'm not, I wouldn't want to deny that maybe some ways of thinking about morality, if you employ certain ways of thinking about it, might get you into the state of, of having, of it having certain kind of ontological, and that's possible. What I would be worried about is the idea that it necessarily does. And I think there is, is a sense, that's a point where I think, in some sense, although I wouldn't want to defend this view here, I think the expressivist is on stronger grounds than perhaps we've given him or her credit for today. Because the expressivist can tell us a story about how it is that we talk as though we're committed to this ontology, because we are expressing our feelings by using language which, in other areas, is committed to such an ontology, but it's just that when we're using it over here, it's doing something else. So that needs to be knocked out in order for this kind of view to go through. Does that help? Yes, perhaps it's a point that then it might be worth making a distinction between a version of our theory which makes statements about what people are saying ontologically and express moral significance and rejects their statements assuming that they make those ontological statements implicitly. And one but only rejects ontological moral statements when people explicitly make them mm. in the service of expressing feelings.
but I tend to take a kind of slightly less skeptical term. Um, I, I would tend to say that in science we, we have this theory that you know they, they are observations are theory laden, and yet it's not actually a problem. Right. So we shouldn't see right. it being a problem in all theory. Well, Halbert has actually written a whole book about notes like this. <laughs> <laughs> Don't dream of this. Any further questions? I think there was, okay. yeah, there was one in the middle of the Actually, no, there was a gentleman up here. You, you, yeah, you, uh, you've been waiting for a long time. The, uh, a, a ruler, his sole desire is to avoid confound all attempts at his own death. Judgment. A 
the error theory, you know, the error theory tells that all of those moral judgments are false. It's not just judgments about genocide being wrong, but also judgments about genocide being permissible. It's all of, I mean, that's, and that's one reason why it's so very, very hard to accept this implication of the error theory. Because whatever moral view you hold, the error theory is going to deny that that view is true. But, so, but it in no way legitimizes um, what horrible people are doing by saying that's permissible. Because the other theory will say nothing is wrong, nothing is permissible, nothing is right, nothing is good or bad. I'm saying that because uh, Colonel Gaddafi operates, you know, he works, he's a working system, you know, and that can, by all appearances, that can be right. Uh, Whereas the people who put themselves in danger, you know, they're, they're perhaps seem to be wrong, you know, because survival is. Uh, well, maybe they're ready to die for some higher ideals, which are being suppressed by someone who dresses up. See, they inherit a certain kind of inheriting message that's yeah, inheriting uh, truth. You know, that's uncorrupted by being able, by even to decide that it's not erroneous to to go face death because something will prevail. Well, one of the things I can tell you that I don't believe in is that might makes rights. That's bad news from I don't believe that might makes rights. I think on that note, unfortunately, we're out of time, so we have to.